NASM's new subscription service, NASM Connected, is the best value in fitness. When you sign up, you'll get access to everything you'll need to expand your career, master new disciplines, and stay up to date with your certification in one great package. Gain instant access to over 350 online fitness courses available anywhere, anytime, on any device. Earn CEUs for dozens of approved providers. Plus, unlock articles, webinars, videos, and podcasts from the biggest names in fitness. Don't wait. Sign up today and unlock the best content in fitness at the best price. Get connected at nasm.org slash connected or call 1-800-460-460. 6276. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to NASM Live. This is Prentice, and I'm here again with uh, some familiar faces, Wendy Bats and Marty Miller. How are you all doing today? Great. Great, thank you. All right. So today we are going to talk about uh we're going to talk about the cpt but specifically the power phase uh and why this is why this phase is important for every athlete every athlete you have at some point in their lives when we're when we're taking them through the opt model uh in your daily lives you're going to have opportunities to express your strength and power and it's not all the times tied to an athletic endeavor, so I will let these two experts take it away. Uh, so first of all, Marty, can you uh, can you talk about the power phase and why I, I alluded to it a couple seconds ago, but why is power important for everybody from your kids all the way up to your grandparents? Sure. The, the way I say it, and you know, this is my definition, but I say everyone's an athlete. And the reason I, I say that is I've had the privilege of working with elite athletes and I've had the privilege of working with everyday fitness enthusiasts. And I really don't train them any differently. And what I mean by that is everyone has the same human capacities. It's what's their ability within those capacities. So just because someone is competitive doesn't mean that they train in different capacities than somebody like my mom or my teenage boys or anything like that. It's just someone's ability may never be near somebody else's ability within a capacity, but doesn't mean we, we ignore the capacity. And I think that happens a lot with strength training and power training for non-athletes. On the reverse, I think some people forget how important stability and balance is for our competitive athletes. So that's why the OPT model is such a beautiful continuum because it's for everybody. As you learn it, you'll figure out where they fit within each phase and what they're capable of. But we want everyone to go through some level of training through all the phases, especially again, we're going to start in the stabilization, but we want everyone to go through some level of strength and power. And the reason it's important is for athletes, it's clear and obvious, right? They all want the bigger end. You know, Wendy and I always say we're going to give you the better brakes first and the better suspension before we give you the bigger engine. But a lot of my, you know, fitness enthusiasts that just want general fitness, they think that they can avoid that because they don't understand the need. Well, the need can come into a lot of different ways is if I can get you to move more load after I make you move efficiently, you're going to burn more calories. You might increase your bone density, whatever that goal you may have. On the flip side, if I can eventually get you to move a little more quick and develop power, you're going to again, get fitter, you're going to burn more calories, you're going to be able to challenge your heart rate system differently. And then there's a carryover to everyday life. You know, we step off a curb, 
and you have to quickly grab your balance. You don't have time to think about it. So there's, you know, there's the performance side from what I want to do in a gym or in a competitive realm, whether it's tennis or golf. And then there's the real life power development or strength when I have to face some new activity that maybe wasn't planned accordingly, you know, especially with power to re, you know, uh, catch my balance and react quicker than I may have thought. So it's important for everybody. And I want to go back to you. You said something very important, and I want to make sure that uh, if you learn, if anyone out there listening learns nothing else, that they get this point. And you said that everybody, you train everybody like an athlete, and that's something that I've always done uh, in in my career. But sometimes people are afraid of taking up that that moniker because they feel that. Uh, that being an athlete looks sort of like a, a, a Rocky a Rocky training montage. And I know you're a martial arts fan. You may have seen those movies in the 80s and 90s, like the, the Jean-Claude No Retreat, No Surrender uh, training montage. Uh, so so can you explain what, what exactly it is to, to be an athlete? Go sure. back to that and, and just expand on that a little more. Sure. Well, when we're when I'm training my people who don't consider themselves an athlete, and we'll we'll talk about maybe how they can develop themselves to more of that athlete mindset. This goes back to one of my clients. I remember the, the minute that I actually used that term for the first time that I can recall. I was just getting done with professional baseball where I was training, and he said, "Well, Marty, how do you train us differently now that you're here in a private club than when you trained your elite athletes?" And I was like, "I don't." And I think he thought I was being nice at first because it's a private club. He's a member. They own the club. And he goes, no, no, seriously. I said, Jay, I said, there's no difference. You have the same bones, same muscles, moving the same planes of motion. You need stability. You need strength. You need power. I'm not going to train you differently in my approach. Your abilities are going to be different just like my abilities compared to the elite athletes. I'm not going to produce as much power as, and I'm not going to produce as much strength as the world-class athletes. But that doesn't mean I don't use the same training principles within what makes sense for me. Wendy and I have been talking about this since we started these webinars is it's all going to be in a relative sense, right? So not everyone needs to do plyometrics. Not everyone needs to do max strength training. But that doesn't mean there aren't bits and pieces of each one of those phases that if moving them through a logical progression, that they're ready to go to the next step and you use your tools accordingly, right? Like maybe someone never leaves the ground, but maybe they do speed squats, Maybe some, you know, they, there's agility work, speed, agility, quickness drills they can do. And then you, what you'll find, though, is as they start to feel comfortable, because they had like what you're saying, Prentice, they had their mindset going, oh, my God, I've watched these, you know, fitness competitions and I've watched world class athletes train. That scares me. They realize that they are an athlete and that they do need to improve. And I've exp I'll explain to them the why. Right. Because we always want people to be have ownership in what they're doing. All of a sudden you'd be stunned how all of a sudden now they want to experience a little more. It's, it's going to be safe, of course. But, you know, I, I've done workouts and like Prince, you said, I might not put in the boxing that day. And they're like, we're not boxing today? Because now they've enjoyed that new activity and they, they feel proud about it and they get a different fitness experience than maybe would have used to in other more traditional workouts. So it, all it does, it comes down to know the model, know your progressions, know when it's time to progress, and know what you're good at teaching, right? If you're not yeah. Quick, you don't put that in yet. If you're not somebody that knows how to teach striking, you know, maybe you don't add that in. We all have our tools that we're better at. It's just knowing how to develop your own toolbox so you can train more athletes, 
whether they're professional or recreational. Yeah, and I'm going to ask you the same the the same question, Wendy. But uh, before I do that, and I just want people to understand that that uh, and our producer in the background there could probably attest to this that there are even in the NBA some some athletes, professional athletes who have trouble jumping over a piece of paper, but they are incredibly highly skilled at that sport, and I think that's what the uh, one of the biggest differences is between the uh, between uh, the run of the mill general population athlete and the professional athlete. And I want to kick this to you, uh, uh, Wendy. How do you make that connection uh, with your clients that they are in fact athletes? Well, I mean, you know, again, when you tell someone that they're an athlete, their inner kid comes out. So they get super excited when you say that, you know, and then if they say, oh, I'm far from an athlete, I'm like, well, are you really, you know, so, so let's just try some of these, you know, exercises and see what you think. Let's see how you do. Because again, I wouldn't put them in phase five if there was any chance of injury. Obviously they had progressed to that and they're ready for those types of exercises and the superset that we would, would put them in through the, on the resistance side. So, you know, if they don't like that term, you know, let's say you have someone that's like, oh, I don't like sports and whatever. I may not call them an athlete because that might not be their, their um, that might not be something to excite them. But I tell everyone that they need to train for the speed of life. And so basically, you know, that, you know, even though they are, they, they should have an inner athlete. I mean, I want to make sure that they can safely cross the street fast if it's turning yellow or if they want to start going outside and playing with their kids and, 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 you know, just doing fun things, you know, phase five is, is, is so fun. It is, it's, it's a good workout. You burn a ton of calories, but you know, if you were having a, a stressful day going and doing med ball slams, how fantastic is that? So there's a lot of carryover that I think, you know, as a trainer, however you approach it, um, can, you know, you just have to kind of feel them out first. And that's why the building the rapport way in the beginning is so important because then you kind of know how to speak to the different phases that you're taking them through. So, so again, you know, as Marty said, even if it's someone that's never, you know, done sports because they're not coordinated or they've never had the experience of doing fun things, you know, you're introducing them to, you know, to different types of exercises that, that they may really, really enjoy. And then they're going to always want to come back to it. Outstanding. And uh, uh, thank you both for indulging me on that little uh, uh, detour. But let's get back into it. So now we're, we're going to talk about flexibility uh, in phase five training. And Marty, what are we uh, what are we doing in phase five uh, flexibility training? Well, building off the progression we've made in the other two phases. Now what we're going to do is we know that the workout's going to be more intense from a central nervous system standpoint. So we're still going to, of course, do our foam rolling, get the tissue prepared. We've gone over a lot of the, the scientific benefits of that. But then we go into dynamic stretching. And again, think of it on a progression. Dynamic, you know, doesn't mean my first set of stretches have to be at the fastest speed that I can do. Let's say whatever that dynamic stretch is like prisoner squats, right? So again, that can still be on a continuum. But the goal is now we foam roll get the muscles prepared. And now we start to move more like we're going to, as Wendy said, the speed of real life or the, or the workload that we're going to do and the, you know, the intensities that we're going to do in the body of the exercise program. So, you know, I've had this a lot when I teach live workshops and people are like, Oh, it's too fast right away. I'm like, well, what's wrong with two to three sets of prisoner squats. And first one is give me 40%. 
Second set, give me 60%. Third set, give me 80%. And you're still building through that continuum and, and you're really honing in on those movement patterns. And it's as fast as you can control. It's not as fast as you can go. So going back to that athlete, I promise you, if you put me next to a world-class athlete, their dynamic is going to be much faster than mine. But that is still dynamic for me. And three weeks later, my dynamic stretching and whatever I'm doing should look more dynamic than it did three weeks previously. So it's always going to be on a, a continuum of what's appropriate for that individual in either the phase we put them in or within that phase. Okay. And uh, can you talk to me? I want to get back to a point you made, but before I do, let's uh, talk about the variables. Uh, what are the variables? What's going on in flexibility training at in uh, phase five? The, the variables well, for the foam rolling, yeah. yeah. Foam rolling stays the same. So the beautiful thing, thing about it is all three phases, you're going to foam roll the same way. You're going to you know, depending on how much time you have, you're going to search through the body of the muscles that you're definitely going to hit in the workout. We've talked about whether you want to do an upper body, lower body split or total body, but techniques stay the same. With the dynamic now, what we're looking to do is start to increase ability for the central nervous system to control those motions, those movement patterns. So what we're doing is let's say, you know, let's do a push up with rotation, for example, that's a great dynamic warm up. So we're you know, going through at an even tempo. It's not fast and explosive yet to where you can't hold your form and technique, but it's more of a repetitive motion to where you're moving at you know, a consistent speed. But the key thing is, when does I'll tell you, is your five kinetic chain checkpoints better be in. If all of a sudden we're starting to do this push-up with rotation and we see their head dropping or their low back arching, we're going to have to cue that out or go back to a regression Maybe they just do more of a speed push-up, right? So we still have to keep our five kinetic chain checkpoints in, but the tempo is going to be more quickly but very deliberate to what they can control. And you usually stick between 10 or 12 repetitions per dynamic stretch. Okay. Do you mind if I give you a, a scenario? Because I've had this question asked of me. Um, let's say you're working with someone in uh, in Wendy's laughing. Don't worry. I have one for you too, Wendy. Uh <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, let's say you're, you're working with one of your athletes in phase five and for whatever reason they had incomplete, uh, maybe they had a competition, incomplete recovery, uh, whatever life stress, whatever those circumstances are, and they're coming in a little slow. Maybe they're not quite prepared to something dynamic right away. Do you still use more of a, uh, do you regress them uh, doing some, doing a little static active to get them warmed up or do you, uh, how do you, how do you manage that? Yeah, it, we'll go through two scenarios. So in a perfect world scenario, as we've talked on the last couple of webinars is the way we write the book is to make sure that you know exactly that phase as you're going through things the first time. But when you see any one of the three of us use it we'll add our own sprinkle to it. So I generally will still do the foam rolling always. Then I, a lot of times I'll do one or two static of muscles that just tend to still be somewhat tight on everybody, especially if I know they just drove 25 or 30 minutes, you know, and if they're wearing shoes all day or high heels, male, female, I'm probably going to do some static on the hip flexors and then static on the calves, et cetera. Then I go through active to let that Obviously, I want to get the opposite muscle group now to fire so that way they can control that new range of motion. Then I'll go into the dynamic. We write it in the book in a very clean cut way so we can assess your knowledge on 
power, but that doesn't mean you can't use that continuum. So yes, I will do it that way. But a, another point to what question brought up is how do I adjust? So I view my program design like Google Maps. You put in your starting point, you put in your endpoint, and then everything else is filled in. Well, we've all been driving using Google Maps. And all of a sudden it says, hey, take a detour because something changed. Well, that goes in our program design too. If somebody comes in and they're jet lagged or they didn't sleep that night or they missed a couple meals, I may not even put them through that power workout, right? I may have to regress. So what you're telling me is part of the process where I'll say, okay, maybe they need a, a, a little more in the warm up. They might need more time to mentally get prepared to focus on their form technique. So I'm going to go back and get them through the static to active. But if I'm still seeing things go awry, I might go right back and change the phase of training I'm in that day too. So just because it says power on the clipboard doesn't mean that I stick to that because life happens. And just like, you know, when I'm doing any other phase, if they're having a great day, I might give them an extra rep or two. Or So I'm always willing to adjust by what I'm seeing, which is still another form of an assessment. Yeah, exactly. And that is that is a very important point for everyone who's listening from CES through uh, phases one through five and even into some of the PE uh, training protocols. Uh, you're still assessing your client every day. Still assessing the basic going and just as Marty's saying, the training that you have in the notebook may not be the training they need uh, for that day. So you have to be prepared to reroute. Especially with our face, say that you know, if somebody's doing, but they're just not as stable as they can, they can keep it safe. But if you can tell that they're not there on a power day or a max strength day, those aren't the days to you know, just push through necessarily because you have a higher chance of something going wrong, you know, and that's where our job is to keep them healthy. So yeah. I'm always willing to adjust at any point in time. Yeah. And that's definitely when training becomes more of the art. Exactly. Than, than the science. So now, Wendy, you've been sitting there, you've been <laughs> sitting there and you've been nodding and it's, I'm, I'm not really ignoring you at all, but uh, uh, let's talk about what's happening with core balance and plyo during sure. this phase. So we're taking like the core and lower extremity stability and the reactive strength that we've developed in phases one through four and now we're using that as a foundation to work on rapidly controlling forces eccentrically and then rapidly producing force concentrically through the core during this during the single leg activities that we're doing. So when we think about core, core work would be doing many of the same movements that you just did in the strength, but you're doing them faster. So, for mm -hmm. example, instead of doing a cable chop um, now I'd be doing maybe something like a wood chop throw with a med ball. Um, when we think about balance, uh, balance work in phase five is typically going to involve hopping exercises or similar, you know, with, with, but this time you're hopping and then holding that to work on eccentric force reduction and then the isometric control at a faster speed while on a single leg. So, for example, a multiplanar hop to a stabilization hold or traveling hops to a stabilization hold. And this is also, you know, when you're actually learning the model where people get kind of confused. Because in balance, when you're looking at it, it says hop to a stabilization hold. So when people hear the word stabilization, they automatically go to the, the plyo part of the stabilization hold in one. So one thing to think about is, again, if you're new to this, in balance, in phase one, there's no movement of the stance leg. Then we add centric and eccentric um, uh, motion of the stance leg, so something like a single leg squat. 
And then now we're still on one leg and we're adding the hop and it's an explosive hop. And then do you own it? So that's why that landing is so important. And so plyo, when we're talking about plyos, we're, the work in phase five is going to evolve or involve clients performing jumping. So now, now we're on two legs, but the jumping type movement with proprioceptive drills done as quickly as they can control um, to really exploit the stretch shortening cycle, which is going to improve how they rapidly produce force later on. So beginning of the core and the balance and the plyo exercises in this phase are similar to what you could do in the resistance training portion of your program. You can omit these components in a session. However, I recommend, and, and I think NASM does as well, doing some sort of core balance and plyo work as part of the movement prep sequence. And with that being said, they don't have to be power focused, as Marty was saying, but instead they could be exercises that are more stable, or like stabilization or strength focused to help prepare and get prime the body to what's going to happen later in the workout. So that's kind of a short and skinny of the, the phase five of, of what they all, right. all are. So. Yes. Now, can you can you talk to us, uh, uh, just go back over and then talk to us about the uh, the variables for what's happening in, in core and balance. And I have a special question for you as well. So <laughs> will you be prepared for that. Fantastic. Um, yeah, so, so when you're thinking about sets, it'll be two to three sets. Um, you know, you're going to also see the rep ranges are going to be eight to 12 across the board. Uh, the the um, the tempo and core is going to be as fast as they can control. So as fast as possible. But obviously looking at the form, the five kinetic chain checkpoints and, and making sure that they own the movement. Um, you know, the rest is anywhere from zero to 60 seconds. And again, it's optional. However, I think we've kind of talked about the importance of, of preparing the body. Uh, same thing with balance. It's going to be eight to 12 repetitions. Um, you're going to be doing, you know, same two to three sets. But this time, remember, when you're thinking about the landing, you're hopping and then holding that three to five seconds before repeating. And um, and, and also, you know, keep in mind, multi-planar hops are very, very important because of the different types of, of cutting and different types of explosive things you could be doing in the program. So, so we definitely want to, you know, incorporate those into your program and the, the rest again is just zero to 60 seconds and then when you're thinking about the plyo uh, component it's the same thing two three sets eight to 12 reps as fast as they can control and then you know if you're going to have them rest it would be zero to 60 as well okay and here's my special question for you uh you you brought up two very important points uh the, the concept of speed and the, the concept of control. And I'm sure you and I, all three of us have seen in the gym people doing uh, plyo tight exercises, plyo tight, and they're just jumping incredibly long distances, lacking control on the landing, not having the ability to, uh, to uh, control, control their landing to set up for the next movement. Talk a little bit about control and how you monitor the range in which they're hopping. Oh, well, so, I mean, again, you know, the five kinetic chain checkpoints is still something that we're following throughout all of the phases that they're in. So if you see that, you know, somebody doesn't land, like, so we always say in the very beginning, you know, to, la to land on the reactive point of the foot. And people think that that means just the ball of the foot. Well, actually, 
you know, it's, it's behind the, the ball of the foot and in front of the arch. So if you were to take your tennis shoe and bend it, where it bends is basically where you want that client to land, to truly be able to land, absorb the force and the concentrically explode. And what we're trying to work on is we're trying to reduce what they call the amortization phase, which is the time spent on the ground. And so if we can teach someone how to land and that they're landing appropriately, they're going to be more explosive when they take off for the next rep. So if you see somebody that, you know, when they jump, their, their landing mechanics aren't correct, they're, they're starting to turn a foot out or, or something's not right, then you want to decrease the, the distance that they're going or maybe even have to regress it to something that you're doing in the frontal plane and they don't really understand that yet, you're going to have to take two steps back, read their body on how to, to, to land appropriately and, you know, maybe work back in the sagittal plane until they can start to, to excel in the frontal and transverse planes. Because as you know, those are more difficult because people don't usually train in those planes. So... So I don't know if that answers your question, but uh. that does that answers <laughs> that answers it perfectly. Okay. Um, and uh, it's it's important for everyone listening to to get the point of we're, we're talking about control, even though we're moving fast, we're moving within within ranges and distances that we can control. You answered it perfectly. And because of that answer, I'm going to give you a question from one of our viewers. Uh, this is. Hugo, and his last name looks like Falcão, like it's a Portuguese name, Boa tarde. Uh, so when, uh, so he's asking, or his statement is, when you notice one of those five kinetic chain checkpoints uh, are failing in the dynamic warm-up, he's asking, what do you do in the next session or in the next week? Well, I mean, I think you want to take, like, going back to what we said, so, you know, the, the purpose of dynamic warm-up is be basically doing a an exercise through the full available range of motion. I mean, that's the definition of what we're looking at when we're talking about dynamic flexibility or dynamic exercises um, for your warm-up. So, if somebody doesn't have you know, the right range of motion or you see something, then it's okay to go back and stop that dynamic exercise go maybe into some static stretches and then repeat it and see if it cleaned up at all. And if it, you know, because again, if I'm starting to see that client break down, I'm not going to want them to do the most explosive exercises right there because again, that could lead to injury. I mean, we're trying to put them in the best case scenario. So, um, you know, if you, you notice that they're not there, maybe kind of regress them, try to work on range of motion by statically stretching, then doing some active and see if it cleaned up. And then if not, maybe that, that workout needs to be regressed for the day. And then you go back into stabilization, try to refire some of those muscles that may not be working correctly in order to maximize and, and, you know, do the exercise successful because if they're not doing well in the dynamic, you know, that that's going to transfer into the workout and it could, could actually lead to more issues and cause more harm than good. Okay, perfect. Now, Marty, back to you. So now that we're getting into uh, resistance training, uh, now that we're getting into uh, resistance training, can you go over the uh, the loading parameters? Can you discuss the supersets again? I know we've touched on it in previous webinars, but talk about what's happening uh, in the nervous system with those supersets and talk about the acute variables. Yep. So once you get through the warm-up, as Wendy discussed, 
when you get into the body, the resistance training, it, we're doing a superset. And there's a scientific rationale behind that. So when you look at force production, you want to get as much strength going and as at the highest speed possible. So when you break that down from a muscle fiber type is we've got our muscle or type two fiber types. Well, rarely in life do we ever fire all of our muscle fibers. Yeah. And now just for clarity's sake, it's all or none principle. If a muscle fiber fires, it fires completely. But the percentage of muscle fibers that would fire in a movement pattern generally are you're rarely ever going to be at 100% unless you pick up extremely heavy loads. So as I go to pick up this can of club soda, very few muscle fibers are going to fire. Whatever do fire, fire completely. So what the goal is behind the superset is that first exercise, a traditional strength exercise, is between that one to five, six repetitions to bring every muscle fiber to the party in a way. So then when you go immediately as quick as possible to a movement pattern that mimics the strength exercise you just did, now when you move explosively, the majority of those muscle fibers are ready to help produce that power component where you're moving explosively. So easy, we'll talk about chest. I do a heavy dumbbell or barbell chest press one to five, six repetitions. And I should be fatiguing right at that five or six mark, right? Or whatever. If I can do eight or 10 or 12, even if I stop at five or six, I'm not really getting that full excitation of the majority of my muscle fibers. Then I'd go grab a medicine ball and I would throw it against the rebound or a wall or to a partner as explosive as I can between eight to 10 reps approximately. And it shouldn't be more than 10 to 20% of your body weight because you really want to elicit explosive movement Sometimes people use heavy of an object for that power, and now they're not getting the muscles to move explosively. So that's why we pair those together. So it's the strength first to wake up all the muscle fibers possible, immediately followed by something fast and explosive with the same movement pattern. So now you've trained the central nervous system to move explosively once you've got everything excited. Okay. Now, you, you've touched on explosiveness. Um, so if I'm, in the, if I'm in the gym and training my – training my client, we've done a heavy set of squats. Uh, and then we start doing squat jumps and I notice the power, the speed of those jumps start to drop off. All of the kinetic chain checkpoints are still in alignment, but I'm noticing a speed drop off. What do I do? A couple of different things. One, did you progress them to the power phase too quickly, right? Like, so they might've did okay the first set. Maybe they're just not ready for this phase of training yet. Two, how many sets have you done? Have you gone past, you know, maybe they're only ready for two sets right now. You Maybe they're not ready for that third or fourth set, which is usually the cap because there's that work to rest ratio and there's also, you know, volume versus intensity. So just because it's my first or second time in this phase doesn't mean I have to complete four sets. Maybe one or two is appropriate because I build into this phase. Or maybe I just put too much weight on the bar for the strength component, you know, maybe two repetitions was too much. It just gassed them. I need to lighten it up a little bit, let them get five or six repetitions. Again, it's an assessment. I have to decide, you know, what's going on. Okay. Or did I pick a power exercise that's too challenging, right? Maybe instead of doing jump squats, I might just do speed squats, not let them leave the ground yet. So all of these things, again, it always goes back to the micro progressions and regressions that we all know. It's, I have to know seven different versions of each exercise in a sense, right? Sure. Because I don't want to take big steps back. I want to take just a small enough step back 
to find what's perfect or move forward just a micro progression and not go to an exercise that's way, you know, from A to Z. I want to be able to know all those little progressions in and out. So I know that's not a very direct answer, but we use it on that continuum of how many sets, how many reps, is the volume getting too much? Is the intensity too much for them? Or did I just pick an exercise that's too challenging for that secondary exercise? And do, is there something I can give them that now I get to see the speed that I'm looking for that's ideal for that person? Thanks. Yeah, thanks for that, uh, that explanation, Marty. And then that just gets back, if I can summarize what you said, that's the art of, uh, that's the art of training. You're building rapport with your client. You are assess. You should be assessing your client in uh, uh, every session, not necessarily directly. And you have to understand the progression and regressions that are going to give you the response that you're looking for. So that yeah. was perfect answer. Well, and, and the way I always say it, the science of training is the easiest part to teach because it doesn't change, right? Once you know the science, that is that's your cookbook that's it just doesn't change the art of training taking in you know each person your environment what tools you have what you know what's going on around in the gym around you what the client likes doesn't like you know their rest and are they doing their homework communication style that's the art of it but we don't want to leave the science behind <laughs> no they they work together they definitely work together uh now want to go back to some uh some commonly asked questions that we've we've gotten. Uh, and you've touched on this, both of you've touched on these already. So I'm gonna ask you, I'm gonna change our questions around a little bit and ask you something a little different. Throw in your curveball, Wendy. Uh, so we've already established that everyone should be doing phase five, phase five training at uh, at some level. It's not we have to train for the speed of life. And so we know that that's important. How do you how do you make the case to to someone, someone who thinks they're going to get bulky, you know, someone who doesn't want to be who doesn't want to be a meathead, meathead like me. I'm really big in my own mind. So they don't no one wants to be like me. But uh, how, how, how do you make that case to to get your clients excited about doing training like this? I mean, I, I think we need to keep in mind things. So, I mean, as we age, you know, or become less active and more deconditioned, um, we lose the ability to generate muscular power. So, however, you know, the ability to generate, you know, and also eccentrically control forces um, quickly is critical to be able to respond to the speed of life. So, if you think about losing your balance and catching yourself before you fall, or, you know, or, you know, th this could compromise your joints if you're not careful. So, yes, I mean, at some level, everyone should do phase five. And, you know, we want to keep in mind the relative abilities of the client at all times. So in phase five, we're training and conditioning the client to be able to move faster than they're used to moving in order to level up their ability to produce power. So for more advanced clients, you might be using weighted med balls for the power exercise, whereas less capable clients, you may use none or very light weighted balls, you know? So another aspect of phase five that most of our clients appreciate is that it's fun. 
And so being able to throw and slam stuff around and, you know, and get after it a little bit can be just what they want, you know, or need to blow off stress and, and steam, especially these last few weeks. Um, so, so I don't think that, you know, my clients come in and think that I'm, I'm going to try to like blow them up to be as big as possible. But, you know, we're going to say today, we're going to, you know, we're going to throw some stuff around. It's going to be a super hard day, but you're going to have a really good time. I think, again, it comes back to the art of training and your approach to these type of programs, because the, the outcome is, is what everybody needs. They have to be able to move faster at certain parts of their life. And you train, you know, you get what you train for. So we always want to keep that in mind that if, if you never train fast, you're never going to be able to move fast or or adjust quickly in different certain situations without maybe increasing chances of injury. Thank you for that. Uh, thank you for that explanation. And I want to add a little bit a little bit onto that for the trainers out there and everything that that Wendy said was was brilliant, but for trainers, that goes back to the art that Marty was talking about. And and you have to have a little negotiation skill. You have to be able to sell the story of, of why this is of why this is important. I, I still train with uh, seniors, train with seniors once in a while. And just as an idea, we we talked about doing this phase five training, but they automatically had visions in their head of, uh, of guys from Iceland with all continents in their names. So, and they were going to be lifting those sorts of crazy loads. But once, once I got my, my guy to understand that, no, your five rep is just a push up on the floor. That's what you can handle. And you're going to throw a five pound med ball at me. That's it. That's all it is. And then once we had that connection and we managed those expectations, it's like, well, is that all? Like, yeah, that's that's all. That's that's all it is. It's relative to you, not relative to the four hundred six foot eight, four hundred pound guy. So it's uh, so there's something in uh, what I want everyone to get out of this is there's something in it for everyone. You just have to know how to sell that and, and tell a story. Uh, tell a uh non-fictional story to your clients to get them to buy into it. Uh, Marty, this next question is for you. Uh, now, you work with, you worked with athletes in the past, and I know you have as well, Wendy. Uh, work with a martial artist guy, a wrestler, a boxer who's in a weight class. Uh, and, it, and it says, we're, we need to do one to five repetitions in phase five. Uh, you can't build size. You don't want to... Uh, I'm doing my air quotes there. Lift yourself into the next weight class. How do you explain, how do you get them to do phase five, first of all, and how do you explain that to them? Absolutely. It's a great question. So a couple different points. First, we're going to go by science, not gym science. Sure. If one to five reps was the way to get bigger, that's what we would have in hypertrophy training. Science doesn't show that one to five reps is the best way to get bigger. Not saying that there's some people can just lift any type of weight and they just have unbelievable genetics. Okay. That there are those type of people, but one to five reps is the way to get stronger. That's why we have it as max strength. Hypertrophy is the eight to 12 with shorter rest intervals and you get the cellular change. Also, let's remember when you're looking at hypertrophy, you have to have a very focused nutrition program. You have to be at a positive, you know, a caloric positive, at least 500 calories. Sometimes they'll back off their cardio. 
if you're doing mixed martial arts, you know, apprentice, you and I have both done it, to, you know, to an, at an amateur level, not a professional level, anything like that. But with the volume that they're doing from just their pure time in the dojo and the training center, they are burning so many calories that they'll be lucky to maintain their weight. So again, the one to five is perfect because your apprentice, I know you've done a lot of jujitsu. I've experimented with it. When you got somebody holding you down, you better have the ability to exert some force or if you're trying to take somebody down, hold them down. So max strength and or the power phase where you do it with the superset is absolutely spot on for a part of training for combat athletes. And you're not going to – and plus with all the cardio that they do, you know, when I was in high school and I wrestled, we had more distance than the cross-country team. So when you factor all that in, you know, there's, it's going to be hard, not impossible – hard to gain weight you just got to factor now if you are one of those genetic freaks that as soon as you start lifting weight you put on some muscle mass watch your nutrition and just do the additional cardio but by and large that's not going to be the case or we'd have that formula in hypertrophy training yeah yeah and yeah i'd be jacked now but that's that's not the case so I'm, I'm here to tell you that uh, phase five is uh, good for all of you, <laughs> good for all of you, regardless of your uh, sport. And uh, Wendy, this next one's for you. And this gets into the flexibility of what we can use for our power exercises. And this question is, is what are some alternatives to using a wall, uh, a wall or a med ball? Uh, this person doesn't have a wall in their gym, a safe for throwing, uh, and they want to, they want to be able to perform, uh, explosive exercises. So what are some options? Well, we want to think about the goal. Um, so the goal intensity for power exercises is to start with body weight on the low exercises before adding load. So we don't have to worry about that, but if we're using a med ball, like we're doing throws and passes, and, you know, the recommended intensity is up to 10% of the body weight. So a lot of times people just immediately just go grab 10% of their body weight and start using that type of med ball. So remember, it's up to, so start lighter, you know, but, um, you know, we want people to be able to move quickly, you know, initially. So you can start to like two to 5% of the body weight is what I would suggest. Um, if you don't have a wall, then do you have a partner? Because then, you know, as the trainer, if my client is in phase five, it's my responsibility to be able to catch the ball and then pass it back to him as fast as possible. And that's why it's important to kind of go through these phases beforehand. So you see how quickly you have to be able to release the ball back. Um, you know, if you don't have a wall that you can use, but you do have medicine balls, you, you know, you can do the med ball slams on the floor, you know, the body weight alternatives. So like the plyo pushups. You know, you can use the TRX straps or, you know, with the sled to do explosive type like that. Um, of course, the elastic resistance bands, you know, battle ropes, you know, so you've got to be creative. And, you know, for your wheelhouse uh, apprentice, I mean, speed strength exercises using things like a kettlebell. Um, you could do certain things like that. So performing a kettlebell swing um, right after you did the barbell deadlift, if you're working on hip thrusts or something like that. I mean, the thing is, is you don't have to use a wall. I mean, if you have a cement wall and you can throw something back, obviously it's going to come back a lot faster. But, you know, as a trainer, it's very important to be ready when a client gets into that into that um, particular phase because you need to be the wall for them or you need to find out like another you know, alternative. Do they have a rebounder or something like that? So it's, that's where creativity comes into play and, and see what you have and then what you can make work. 
Absolutely. And, and uh, to your point, and this is a, you, you brought up the point, Wendy, that phase five is fun and then using creativity. And so one thing that I've done in the past is since we're, since we're always talking about chess, I definitely, I wrap my client's hands, have them do something relatively heavy, and then we strike the pads for eight to 10 rapid fire, rapid fire punches. Same oh, thing, yeah. you don't need the wall, just as long as you can catch punches in the mitts, uh, that's good. So you, you have a ton of flexibility and you can also you can also work in some fun SAQ exercises that you normally wouldn't get your client to do. And it's all appropriate for phase five level of training, provided that you stick to the acute variables and, and the, the speeds that are supposed to happen at each, uh, for each exercise. Uh, so Marty, next question for you. And uh, for the person who asked this, this question is actually going to be answered tomorrow. Or no, it won't be answered tomorrow. It will be answered Monday in our webinar with Aleko. But uh, are Olympic lifts appropriate in phase five? It's a great question. So definitely tune in because Rodney is a master at that. So we have a whole other level of power training that we talk about max power, and that's the PES. So what I would say is Olympic lifting is very technical. It is not the easiest thing to learn, nor is it the easiest thing to teach. Do not attempt to teach it or do it just like anything else if you have not yet gone through it yourself and or know the progressions and regressions. What I would encourage, though, is kettlebells are a great bridge to Olympic lifting. So because you can do one arm swings, one arm snatches, and now you don't have the complexity of both arms going above their head. It's a little bit easier of what I would call an exit strategy if something goes bad. So there are absolutely a time and place for Olympic lifting, but we do kind of put that a little more into our highest level of power, which is the PES. Now, I know there's a lot of people that do the sports competitions out there that include uh, Olympic lifting. But I would say I'm just kind of giving, you know, I'm an athletic trainer. My first job is to watch out for injuries and prevent injuries. Olympic lifting was designed with Olympic athletes, highly skilled, highly technical. Athletes do things that aren't necessarily great for their body because they enjoy the sport. So when you do Olympic liftings with a bar, there could be some compensations in your five kinetic chain checkpoints because of the nature of the sport. So that's why we want it at the more elite level. It may not be for everybody. Also, when you look at Olympic lifting, it was not designed to be an endurance exercise. It was designed to be a one rep, couple rep max thing. So I see a lot of people now blending it into just high intensity workouts and people are doing 15, 20, 30 reps of these exercises. All I'm going to say is be careful because when fatigue sets in, form a technique goes and you need an exit strategy in case you get fatigued with something in a risky position. So that's where when you see it in our model, it's in a very specific spot with progressions on proper human movement, proper teaching techniques. And then we're only doing it for the true amount of repetitions designed for Olympic lifting that one to five. You're not going to see us do it as an endurance type of exercise. So I know that's kind of a little off track of what you were asking, but you know, I, I know that comes up a lot in this high intensity realm. So again, we have the model built the way it, of science, but I honestly like kettlebells a lot because I've been trained on them more. And to me, a little bit easier to teach and a little bit easier to modify because I can do the one arm versions. But 
absolutely a place and time for it. No doubt about it. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a skill that takes a lot of time and it's not something for it's not necessarily something for every client unless they absolutely enjoy it. But I'm going to take the opportunity now to do a shameless plug. It's, uh, we'll be on tomorrow at 1 p.m. Pacific and we're going to go through a couple of case studies uh, that show you how to use uh, corrective exercise for your specific warm-up uh, in the context of Olympic weightlifting. And we're going to use some uh, variations of uh, or derivatives of some of those Olympic lifts that you know and love for, uh, for the integration piece in our corrective exercise process. So if you are around and available, take a look. Uh, take a look at that tomorrow at 1 p.m. And then again on Monday, we're going to program Olympic weightlifting uh, for all phases or all three levels of the OPT model. So you want to you want to listen to that. Uh, it's been fun creating that, and I think you all will enjoy it. So. Uh, and speaking of history, Wendy, this is a, I'm going to give you a history question. Fantastic. Uh, so once we uh, we we talked about uh, seven phases, mm -hmm. seven phases previously. Uh, so this question is asking why is there a phase six in PES and not CPT? But to go forward and understand where we are now, we have to go into a little bit of a history lesson. So. Can we talk through the original seven phases without all of the acronyms? Just tell <laughs> us where. So, so, okay, so if we think about the seven phases, which it originally was, um, again, we took out phase one of the seven, and that is the corrective exercise specialist now. Um, and again, I mean, I think we have emphasized the importance of the CES I know you don't want me to call it that, but, but the corrective exercise. We, we've talked about the importance of being able to utilize that in every one of the programs that we've done, no matter what phase they're in. Because again, even going back to what you were talking about with the Olympic lifting or anyone that did catch Rodney and Kyle's um, webinar that they did, the importance of being able to perform a good Olympic lift or even a high-end high -end athlete is full available range of motion to be able to produce whatever movement and outcome you want. So because it was so complex and there was a lot of things to think about, they took that phase and took it, took it out of the model of the seven phases and made it its own special like version because it, it is so important in order to get someone to move the way. So then, you know, when you're looking at phases two through six, okay, which is now the CPTs one through five, these are the phases that we are we're using with most of the general population. So as a fitness professional, when my clients come in, if I put them in phase one, that we have it as today, which would have been phase two and the seven, right? That is going to be a great starting point for someone that has moved before, but isn't still moving efficiently. And so that we can prepare them throughout the rest of the model. Now, when you were asking specifically about phase seven, which again, we've turned as, as the performance enhancement specialization. So phase seven, I mean, phase, phase seven, or in this, if we look at just the PES, it's one through six. 
Um, you know, we took that one off because max power training is more applicable for athletes or individuals looking to eke every last ounce of performance potential out of their body, usually prior to some sort of competition. So it's generally not very, lo very long phase either. So what most individuals want to accomplish, phase five of what we have it as the CPT today is more adequate for developing functional power and more activities of daily living or the speed of life that seems more appropriate for, you know, the general, again, the general population. That's not a, a specific elite athlete. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, <laughs> makes, that makes perfect sense. And okay. the way we, the way we're using it now is important because uh, sometimes we as, we as trainers think we may get stuck thinking in the box and we think of, those seven phases as a starting point and a destination. Whereas something like the CES, if you're if you're using it to its full potential, you should be using at every at in every phase of the model because all it is is creating the most specific, unique warm-up that you can for that client in, in front of you. And uh, so one more question for you about uh, phase six. Sure. Grandma and Grandpa in the Masters Track and Field Championships. So you having them doing some uh, PES, taking them out and having them doing some sled drags so that they can uh, run the 100? You know what? Again, <laughs> you know, doing explosive exercises is fun at any, in any age. You know, again, you know, people were saying if you have an elderly client or someone that's more senior population that they shouldn't be doing power exercises. And that's not really the case. I mean, you know, in any of our, our programming that we do, um, let's even think about the SAQ stuff. If you have like a, you know, a 70 or 80 year old person that has never done like the speed ladder, it's fun, you know, and it's, it, and again, it's moving as fast as they can control. So no matter what level you're in, even if they're in the phase six, um, they could actually do like an explosive workout if you want. But remember, what's explosive to me might be different than what's explosive to an 80-year-old. And what's explosive to me could be less powerful than a 21-year-old. So, again, it's whatever you can control. And as long as the end goal makes sense to to their capability of moving. And, yeah, just as long as the end goal makes sense to their to their movement capabilities and their experience, and they're able to recover from your training. Go for it. Yeah. Go for it. Did I did I finish that sentence? You for did. You? I didn't. I didn't know I cut out, so I'm sorry. But yeah, that's exactly where I was going. So to end it up, yes, okay. everyone train for whatever it is that their end goal is. Just make sure it's done safely, effectively, and efficiently, and you should be golden. All right. Great. Uh, and this last question is for you, Marty. And I think we've answered this we've answered this a few different times over the course of this webinar uh, and it's surrounding can you use a cable or a band for the explosion the, the explosive portion of a workout but uh, we already know what that answer is but what are some what are some creative ways uh, or what are some creative exercises that you've used as that power part of the superset in uh, phase sure. five training? Sure. Again, it depends on the individual, right? So it's all on that spectrum. So you can use a band cable. The only thing I would say with cables is you, there has to be enough weight where the weight stack doesn't jump. 
So I usually tend to go to bands, but just remember that if you're looking for true power at some point, you're supposed to not have to decelerate bands and stuff are still better than not doing any, but there's going to be some level of deceleration. So again, it's, it's, but it might be appropriate for that individual and that might be all they're able to do. Creative ways. Um, hmm, trying to think I like using the pool. If you know, if you're going to come out of, you know, out of something that's not quite now, again, I might do a whole power based workout in the pool. You know, I'm not going from the gym into the pool and back and forth, but I think that people, you know, can really maximize a pool workout, you know, and they have some really cool dumbbells out there now that I've seen like that, you know, you can do your pushes, your presses, rotations, because you can really get explosive with it. And now you're in a non weight bearing position. So even from a jumping standpoint, now there's a time where you still want to be able to land on the ground and take on that eccentric load, but don't forget about the pool as a, as a bridge to for some people that maybe aren't ready to do anything you know where they're landing yet but you still want them to develop speed or if you want to do some of those upper body things so get creative and maybe you just do a whole session like a, a power metabolic workout in the pool now it's not following phase five of course with the superset but you know wendy touched on it i do modify different levels of body weight exercises the slams i, I don't i try not to be the wall that often for my clients day after day Especially, you know, I've had the privilege of working with some elite athletes where 10% of the body weight is a 20-pound medicine ball flying at you quickly. So, you, you know, you got to be careful with your hands and things like that. But it's just, just like anything else, any other phase. If you're not doing it yourself, you're not going to learn it. And then you have to try to figure out how to master that phase for all type of clients. Yep, outstanding. So while we're, this is about all of the time we have for today. So uh, if any of you who are listening, who are still with us, uh, if you have any questions, go ahead and send those in right now. And while we're waiting, Marty, do you have any parting words uh, about what we talked about today and uh, finish up with how people can find you? Yeah, absolutely. Just remember, everybody's an athlete, which means you've got to get them to some level of phase five. And you might be surprised. Phase five might actually save someone from a serious injury. Imagine if somebody goes to fall and they don't have the ability to absorb power with their upper body. So definitely don't ignore it. It's applicable for everybody. It's fun, as Wendy said. Great from a cardiovascular standpoint. But you got to do it yourself first. You're your first client. And then to find me, uh, my Instagram is miller.marty72. And then my email for NASM is marty.miller at nasm.org. All right. Thanks, Marty. Thanks for hopping on. It's been my really pleasure. insightful. And Wendy, my friend, you have the last word. What are your takeaways and how can we find you? And I think I'm going to back Marty on saying that you need to do it yourself first. Because I know the, the very first time I did it, I actually followed the book. And um, I grabbed 10% of my body weight, which I don't need to tell you what that is, and went to a wall after doing five repetitions and literally almost knocked myself out um, trying to catch the ball because it came flying back at me and I could barely catch it um, just because I was spent. And again, you know, be creative, be smart in your programming, maybe adjust the acute variables a little bit when you're first starting out or starting your clients out because it is very challenging if you are doing, you know, um, like 85 to 100% of your one rep max to start. So keep that in mind. Um, 
and and again, have fun with it. I love one of my favorite things I love doing. And Princess, I had you be my demo is I love doing like speed ladders on the hands, like in and out of boxes as fast as they can moving in different, um, you know, sagittal plane, frontal plane, transverse plane, like have fun with it, be creative. But again, watch the kinetic chain checkpoints, make sure that it's safe. Um, and, and again, just creative, be creative. And then to find me, my um, uh, Instagram is wendy.bats13. My Twitter is wendybats13. And my email is wendy.bats at nasm.org. Okay. Thank you, Wendy. Thanks for uh, uh, hopping on today and sharing your knowledge with us. I thank both of you uh, for this series. It's been very informative. Uh, and thank all of you who have stuck with us and are listening now. Have a great afternoon and be safe.